Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hello, first caller. Hello, Tom. Hey, is that John? This is John. How are you doing? It's John. Hey, long time no chat. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, John P. Daigle. Of, uh, I guess it was about 14 months ago that you participated in a biotic conversation. Uh, yeah, it was about that long. Uh, we talked about uh, pretty much the same topic we're talking about tonight, I think. Uh, I'd like to put a different spin on it this evening. I've received a lot of emails about whether we're going to give it the same kind of coverage, but I'm hoping to take a different angle with regards to this evening's discussions. In any case, we're going to go through some news and notes, and then we'll get started on this evening's topic. The next episode will be on Friday, 30th of May at 8 p.m. Pacific, where our topic will be the Evo Grid and other biota updates with Bruce Dame, Bruce and I, and other folks that wish to call in. We'll chat about the Evo Grid and various exciting new projects that are going to be coming out of biota very shortly. For folks who want to call in, the call-in number is 646 Zero. We also have an active chat room. I understand this evening the Biota Live is going out through Second Life, uh, thanks to Dick and Natalie Gordon, who appeared on uh, last week's episode. They are broadcasting live through Second Life. The chat window may be an ideal way for them to communicate back with us if they're having any discussions that merit passing back into the uh, radio feed. Graytham News. Graytham Silicon Valley will be meeting this Tuesday May 27th at 7pm at SRI International in Menlo Park, Building E, uh, meeting at the visitors' lobby at 7 with the doors closing at 7.15. If you want more information on this, please get in contact with me, tom at noble8.com. However, there is also a Graytham Silicon Valley San Francisco mailing list that I'll probably point you towards as well as pass on to the organisers. The topic for discussion will be the micropond, which is Scott Schaefer's project. Scott was going to appear on this evening's episode, however, unfortunately he can't make it, so he sends his apologies. I did have a lot of information with regards to the micropond, but as soon as Scott was going to appear on this podcast, I cut all of it to enable him to talk more. Uh, when we have Scott on, he'll talk more about the micropond. However, that will be the topic of discussion Tuesday, May 27th. SRI International Menlo Park for Graysum Silicon Valley. I believe Bruce will be in London on, I think, July 7th for Graysum London, and I think that's the next Graysum London, so I should have included that in my notes. Some quick thanks going out to the Talking Robots podcast, which has concluded. However, they have started a new podcast called the Robots Podcast at robotspodcast.com. Talking Robots has been going for two years now. They provide the robotics and artificial intelligence end of the discussion, lots of future projection-related stuff with regards to contemporary academic work and also commercial work. It's a great podcast, and they have supported the Biota podcast since they started as well. I will be playing a promo for their new podcast at the end of this evening's show. For folks who want to participate this evening, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. We have a person in the chat room. Feel free to contribute in the chat room if you would like to talk about this evening's discussion. Now, my hope had originally been that Scott would be here to frame uh, the initial talking points with regards to the discussion, but the topic that I mentioned last week, uh, Outstanding Questions, was framed with regards to an email from Scott Schaefer. So what I'm going to do is read sections of Scott's email and then John and I can begin to discuss it. I feel like 
I'm cheating whenever I make decisions about an artificial life simulation environment. How much energy should it take an organism to move? How much energy should they gain when they photosynthesize, etc.? The feeling I have is that I'm no longer allowing natural selection to work, but I'm playing God and essentially doing the design myself while fooling myself that I'm not. I feel this particularly when I set up environments in a certain way and don't get results that I like. My feeling is that there are environments that provide optimal frustration, that provide enough resources that sophisticated artificial life can evolve while being miserable enough that they have to evolve. This reminds me of the psychological term optimal frustration. So how does one find that? I suppose if you have a set of parameters and a way of measuring the interestingness of a particular evolutionary run, you could search for optimal frustration in an environment. Has anyone tried this? So there was discussion relating to that, and I was hoping Jeffrey Ventrella would be on this call as well uh, to discuss this particular viewpoint. But John, what was your, what was your initial thinking with regards to, to Scott's first email? Uh, well, Tom, the, the first thing that I thought was that, I mean, this is something that I think is, he's right, that I think it's common to many A-life practitioners, this sort of feeling that you're cheating. It certainly is to me. I feel like there are so many things that we abstract out of the simulation that we cut off a lot of possibilities for novel innovation, if that makes sense. Like, we kind of can predict what sorts of things can happen. And then the best example of this are the, the simulators that have creatures that move. You, you, you can't predict what a particular organism is, in, organism is going to involve or what method of locomotion it's going to develop, but you know what its limits are. And with biological life, of course, we don't, you know, beyond the basic physics of the universe, we don't really know what the limits are. And I think that it, it taints the sense of artificial life to a certain degree. If that makes sense. So here's, here's my... Well, I, well, I would like to take a step back initially because you, me you mentioned physics simulation specifically or physics as an abstract idea. Do you feel that people that simulate physical environments for whatever reason, let's just say pure physics, say what Bruce does with regards to lunar and Martian physics, do you feel that they have the same realm of playing God in terms of the way that they construct their simulated environments, or is there actually something different between what they do in physical simulation and what we attempt to do with regards to artificial life in this regard? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that um, I would say that uh, if, you're, if you're just simulating a physical environment and you're not trying to capture this Darwinian process that artificial life is dedicated to sort of exploring, that... You know, you have a little bit more room to play. You know, you, 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 set the, you set the physics up, you watch the physics run, you kind of know what its parameters are going to be, and it, you know what's going to happen in a sense before it happens, and it's not as if you're cheating because you're not looking for novelty. You're maybe learning to learn something more about your simulation than about a scientific theory, and I feel like artificial life at its best should teach us something about the process of natural selection, or it should teach us about um, the boundaries of artificial, of, um, of selection and of Darwinian processes. And that's kind of the conundrum of, of how much can you abstract out some of these ideas about competition or cooperation or how much can you abstract out even the process of an organism getting energy. You know, how much can you take away the chemistry of that and still leave yourself room to learn? Um, that's really what I see as kind of the central dilemma of artificial life development. And it's certainly something that haunts me. 
I mean, for me in particular, reading through the correspondence, in particular Jeffrey's correspondence following, I felt that there was some disconnect between understanding what part of it was simulation uh, in a raw and abstract sense, as I've described with regards to physics, perhaps, and what part of it was with regards to uh, particular theorists, particular methodologies, and as you said, the simulation with regards to, well, I don't even want to say Darwinian elements, because I think they are fundamentally like physics in some regard. I mean, these things should be thought of analogous to physics. There are key terms through the email correspondence which seem to lead me to think that there was kind of additional emotional baggage associated with the simulation process, which I didn't personally feel. And certainly that was my point of concern reading through the emails, that there is a, a disconnect between what one does when one simulates and certainly what one does when one philosophizes or thinks abstractly with regards to these things. And certainly my own sense with regards to simulation is it's far more primary. It's like the physics, it's like the mathematics. It is something which is fundamentally tinkering but makes no kind of broader philosophical judgments with regards to high-level concepts like intelligent design or these kind of things. I mean, if you look at the way physicists simulate, if you look at the way applied mathematicians use simulation environments, they could all be accused of being intelligent designers through the same kind of rationale that was used in the discussion through the thread. The difference is that they don't have this emotional baggage and they get about their business and they do what they have to do. And, I mean, this is something that I found very curious reading through the correspondence, that there was a whole lot of kind of higher-level abstraction with regards to what people were doing as opposed to concentrating on the, the aspects of simulation which will ultimately move artificial life forward. Um, with that kind of analysis, do you see where I'm coming from? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're, I mean, you're completely right. There's, if you look at the current political climate, especially in the United States, I know we have you know, people are involved in biota from around the world, and, and they might not be as kind of aware of the impact that intelligent design has on our discourse in the United States. You know, with movies like Expelled coming out, where you know there's this you know huge conversation where, I where what I consider to be you know very you know a very unscientific um, point of view is trying to be pushed into the science sphere, and so there's a certain defensiveness about just the whole idea of artificial life or or evolution, and so and of course anytime you present something, you say okay, we'll see Darwinian you know a, a genetic algorithm can accomplish this, or we see you know something here, there are people who will kind of accuse you of cheating or say, well, that doesn't prove anything, and perhaps it shouldn't have to prove anything. But there's sort of a sense that, that certainly there are people standing on the sidelines prepared to snipe at your work and say that it doesn't prove anything, regardless of whether it was ever meant to or not, if you, if you see what I mean. <laughs> certainly. I mean, I think my concern is, um, I'll use an abstract example. I've been working on this through the week, but my wife graduated on Monday. We went to her graduation, the collective family and me. And the fellow who is, I'm sure you've appreciated graduating from various things, there are always people that tell anecdotes. And, right. uh, you know, the, uh, three in this case and three anecdotes per person. But one of them started with the anecdote with regards to uh, B-flight, which for me is really a hot-button issue because... The, <laughs> People, it's, it's more about physics than biology fundamentally because if people want to um, depreciate the role of science with regards to actual explanations of B-flight, you know, it, it's patently false to say that science has no answers with regards to bees flying. However, this fellow uh, raised this and uh, my, my blood started boiling. 
Similarly, if you've seen the B movie, there is a similar discussion at the start of the movie with regards to B flight, and I couldn't watch the B movie anymore based on that. And there are all these things, and I do understand the idea of a hot-button issue with regards to these kind of things, but my concern is that the issue that I see... Well, let me continue with the B analogy for a moment. So if I were to take particular frustration at the B movie and Hollywood and construct... Uh, a wide variety of, of polarizing methodologies about people that observed films and people such as myself who choose not to partake in observing films. And I created all this kind of methodology that explained that Hollywood was fundamentally evil and people that consumed Hollywood were fundamentally evil. Then that still doesn't change the essence with regards to an education of science and bees being able to, you know, the, the mathematics and the physics that is there that actually explain, explains bee flight. So there seem to be two kind of divergent conversations that are going on. One is to do with the fundamental nature of simulation, and another is to do with a perceived polarization, which I think in some regard, it's very interesting, and this is a pity we don't have Dick Gordon on this evening, because as you know, I participated in a book with him, and his views with regards to uh, creationism and anti-creationism and intelligent design and atheism and all these kind of things is slightly different than the popular view and I find it very curious actually talking with him about it because he believes that there are uh, folks in the intelligent design movement and the creationist movement in particular that don't have the degree of negative baggage that people like Dennett or Dawkins would wish to ascribe to them. But it, it lays forth that there are existing methodologies and thinking processes which are fundamentally flawed in terms of engaging in this debate. My own view is, you know, I've shared on a few occasions, is that I was taught biology at a similar time frame with regards to evolution and natural selection, these kind of things, as basic, basic mathematics, addition, multiplication. And I assume that these are parts of general knowledge in the people that I meet. I find it very curious when I meet people that don't have an understanding of natural selection or evolution because it's as fundamental as multiplication and addition for me. But at the same degree, I appreciate that the language and the polarization and particularly the terminology has created this divergence in a few people's minds, which is in fact ultimately causing damage in this regard with regards to looking at ideas of simulation. Now, simulation is something that is fundamental in terms of what we do with artificial life. And this is really, and what's curious is talking with Gerald de Jong about this, and I'm sure you've heard some of the conversations I've had with Gerald, because Gerald has a, a long line of, of scholarship and reading with regards to Dawkins' work in particular. And I would have thought that he would agree with you with regards to what you've said about us creating proofs. However, what he says is that fundamentally we're not creating proofs at all. What we're doing is something more abstract and we're actually fundamentally tinkerers. And he swayed me to that viewpoint through the past two years of discussions in some regard, that basically people hold fundamental beliefs which we have no control over and some of those things relate to education or what have you. But my concern is we shouldn't be worrying about this higher level methodological stuff that has nothing to do with primary simulation when we create simulation, just as the physicists aren't worrying about intelligent design when they create their physical simulations. We shouldn't worry about that when we create artificial life simulations. What we are doing is something which is considerably more abstract than these kind of higher level arguments that are going on currently and in particular aspects of U.S. education, as you've highlighted. It is and... And yet, at the same time, 
to, to a degree, we should be constructing proofs. I mean, another, another fallacy, another problem that you run into, I think, when you have an opponent that you dislike, um, you know, for example, you know, the, the scientific community, by and large, has a strong dislike for the intelligent design movement. However, that does not mean that just because they're wrong means that they're valueless or they're, they're, that their points are worthless. And one of the points that they bring up is that our understanding of the process of, of, of especially of biogenesis or, or especially of, of um, emergence from one level of complexity, such as a single-celled life form, to another level of complexity, such as a, a multiple-celled life form, um, one thing that they highlight is how uh, the paucity of understanding that we have regarding these, these fundamental areas of biology. And I think, ultimately, not of just biology, but just of certain of physical laws, right? I mean, obviously, you know, we're all part of the universe, and so it all really comes down to physics and chemistry, right? And so evolution is an outgrowth of the way that physics and chemistry work. Fundamentally, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and so you get this idea that, you know, just, you know, they're highlighting something that it's, it might be valuable to highlight. And to a certain degree, our simulations, you know, the other point that it was bringing up, and the point that I wanted to bring up by saying, you know, that abstraction involves intelligent design is that, you know, obviously the more abstraction you put into a physical system, right, the, the, more, you, the more you have to gloss over the details, the more you hard-coded that algorithm. And you said, well, you know, this is going to be the way that physical laws are going to manifest. Not, not the, we're not going to write the laws themselves. We're just going to write this manifestation. And, um, and that's what artificial life does. And my theory is that we're doing this on far too broad of a, uh, you know, we're painting with too broad of a brush to get any kind of emergent properties out of our system. And I would love to be wrong. You know, I'd like to see um, examples of where I'm wrong. But I, have, I haven't seen them in anybody's simulations yet. So, returning to your original point with regards to uh, claims made by intelligent design, I think in my own reading, and this isn't Dick Gordon's reading, but it's probably closer to Dick Gordon's reading than what you're saying, there are two kinds of people that you can ascribe uh, an ignorance of these things to. The first are people that are doing it intentionally, maliciously, and the second are people that are just not educated with regards to these ideas. And I think my initial thought with regards to artificial life that you probably heard in the conversations we had 14-odd months ago was that, like you were saying, we as artificial life developers could show things to the people that were just ignorant of the biological realities of, of what we're describing. My concern, however, is that there's something more fundamental that actually relates to education, that you or I or really any other artificial life developer has very limited control over. What we do have in terms of our conversations with regards to developing software is an ability to create, as Dick Gordon mentioned last week, more fundamental kind of simulation atoms and to describe these abstract concepts in biology in a way that more people can understand them. And I think that actually gives something back which is slightly better than writing abstract simulations, but will allow us to write better abstract simulations. That we ultimately need to move from just writing software to actually creating theory and philosophy behind the software that we write that is more analogous to what you're describing with regards to physics. And I agree with you. I think that's an important challenge. 
Now, with regards to the smaller subset of the group, or perhaps equal or perhaps larger, with regards to the folks that are propagating a kind of malicious distrust of science or these kind of ideas that we're willing to you know, write artificial life simulations in order to show, my understanding is that there are different methodological ways that we can deal with these people. Uh, which don't relate to simulation, but actually relate to communications with other scientists and integrating what we do with artificial life with the broader scientific community. And I think that creates a, a stronger front in order to, to answer those kind of opponents. But returning to your idea in terms of painting with a broad brush, if we can look at that a little bit, the description that you've given with regards to us all doing similar things in terms of taking Darwinism and showing a degree of emergent novelty. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, I think emergent novelty is, is what we end up missing. There's no simulation where suddenly you see groups of creatures. At least I haven't seen this. And I think the potential is there in everybody's simulation that I've seen. Is there a noble ape? Um, to a lesser degree, it, it could be there in some of the work that I've been doing lately in my work, and then there's, you know, in, in Gerald's work, I think that, you know, because he has a physics and he has simple rules, there's potential there too. But what you don't see is you don't see so much societies evolving from individuals. You don't see really complex behavior that, that's not particularly anticipated. You see a little bit of, of it with swarm algorithms, but, but like, if you look at a, a, uh, something like swarm, you look at something like Boyd, right? Here are these Boyds, and they do this very complex thing. They do this very complex thing because, as you know, was being pointed out, we've explicitly programmed that particular potential into that system. And so we kind of know that we're, we're a little bit surprised, but we kind of know that this is, this is what can happen. They'll group together, they'll follow one leader, and, and so forth. And what you don't see is sort of an open-ended platform, and I'm not sure how this would even be accomplished, but I think it's a worthwhile goal, where you don't have these rules coded in. You have voids that may or may not swarm, and you don't know what they're going to do, and they suddenly start doing something that's, you know, kind of rewriting themselves into a behavior that you did not anticipate, and that's not explicit in your algorithm. It's the idea of an emergent complexity that's truly emergent, where, you know, uh, where, the, where the, the system has bootstrapped itself from the layer of complexity that's explicit in the system such as individual creatures with individual goals and has led to a group system with group goals. And, and I think you see that a little bit in a simulation like Boyd's, which is what makes it so interesting to watch. But um, I kind of feel like it, that, that there's no potential for that to go farther, right? There's no potential for there to be a super Boyd in the system. We've seen how far it can go. It's the open-endedness of it that I think that a fundamental chemistry gives you because you've got a system then that has so much potential that you literally would have no idea where it would be going, which I think is, is you know, what we see around us now. In other words, in the biosphere, what you see is what happens when chemistry gets to run for 3 billion years, right? No one could have sat there at the beginning and watched that first protein formed and said, termites, that's going to become termites. Certainly. But, I mean, you make an interesting point, and I think what you're describing here, and I'm using the popularist term epigenetics as opposed to perhaps the biological term, but what you're describing here is fundamentally the way groups produce intelligence in the most primitive form and how this intelligence then becomes things which are intergenerational and are not necessarily part of the genetics but can become part of the genetics through processes that occur due to group selections that are made. And I think this is what's fascinating because what it shows is that there is actually a lot of additional scope to expand within just 
saying, well, artificial life is just genetic algorithms. Well, artificial life could be just genetic algorithms if there are other things other than genetics that had genetic algorithms applied as well in some regard. The challenge that you're describing, particularly talking about swarm intelligence, requires uh, almost an algorithm soup in terms of working out which algorithms best convey intergenerational uh, intelligence, which algorithms best convey how these things are carried on. It was interesting when I started developing Noble Ape, the idea of the, the normal ape, or the, as you say, with regards to the kind of super or radical in a group, and how we should be considering these kind of simulation methodologies when we create our simulations as well. How can we actually create that? Well, with purely genetic algorithms, and this is something that I've fed back to Gerald, it's, it's more difficult. If you start looking at these things in a more abstract way and start tinkering with them in terms of perhaps simple intelligence, perhaps simple neural network, some way that this can be communicated intergenerationally and, and you know, organisms can learn from being around other organisms and initially a very primitive way and then obviously a, a far more complex way. I mean, these kind of things need to come out of artificial life as well. What we're doing here in terms of the jamming it's fundamentally what artificial life developers should be doing with their simulations as well. I think we're both in agreement on that. And my concern with regards to the correspondence through the, uh, I think it was Biota Conversations mailing list, related to the fact that we are putting these barriers, which are completely and utterly unnecessary and are just part of you know, other methodologies which aren't actually benefiting artificial life development currently. And what we should do is return to the idea of the kind of physicist, applied mathematician simulator in some regard that we're throwing algorithms into a soup and see which algorithms percolate with regards to the kind of behaviours that we're maybe even not expecting, maybe not expecting. And I think this is an interesting point with regards to moving artificial life forward, that we need to start thinking about what the fundamentals are for artificial life development. And certainly in the conversation last week, and I think kind of smattered through these podcasts, the discussion with regards to reinventing the wheel, which is why, you know, when you came on tonight, you said, well, I think we're probably going to be talking about what we talked about, you know, 14 months ago with regards to this. We need to move out of this wheel reinvention cycle. I think Gerald and I, I mean, Gerald and I got into, a, you know, a little bit of a heated discussion last time that, that I was on. We were discussing Java, and I was kind of poo-pooing the idea that, you know, you can't do that with Java. He's saying, yes, I can. I can do anything with Java I want. I'm a developer. Come on. It's a, it's a language, right? And uh, we, we, had a whole, we had a whole kind of argument about that. And, and uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I think he was correct. You can't look at a language, any computer language, arbitrarily and say, well, you can't do whatever in that language because they're all fundamentally the same. And I've wondered since then whether I'm saying, you know, you can't do this on computers, but that doesn't make a lot of sense either. And then what I've been seeing in the conversations over the last 14 months is that more people are talking about the idea of building a common platform with some, with some protocols that we can all work with, at which point, rather than developing full-fledged simulations, the simulations at the level that we're familiar with working with them become more like test units. You know, we're saying, well, yeah, I know it's not the full-blown simulation, but it's just a test unit that goes into this particular soup of ideas or, or this soup of algorithms that can exist and run um, within this platform or protocol. And I think that's a, that's a very promising development um, in terms of this because... You know, one thing that we see is that everybody is developing in, in very separate protocols and with very separate ideas, and we're probably not harnessing the power of the community to not so much share our skills or share our abilities, but share our interests. 
you know, everybody, you know, it's a huge field, and everybody has a thing that they kind of focus on. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in distance. I'm much more interested in proximity and algorithms that look at proximity because of, you know, the nature of my academic research is an ad hoc network. So, of course, I'm always thinking about that. You know, how close is that? Can I hear it? Can this thing smell it? How far does it have to be for a chemical reaction to happen? And you're more interested in cognition, and then you know, different people have very different areas of interest. And I think that the idea of a common protocol, which I think I've been hearing people talk about, where we can all sort of explore our interests is, is a very exciting, I think, as a, as a possibility. I mean, is, is, is this actually happening? Or? Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned smelling and seeing, because I think that was my view with regards to the starting point for the Evo grid. So when I created the XML phenotype for Noble Ape, it was fundamentally to say to uh, other simulators, Jeffrey Ventrella, you know, John Klein, these kind of folk, Adam, come and sniff a Noble Ape, come and look at a Noble Ape and see how your simulation reacts to it. I think what is coming out of my discussion with a number of people uh, on my own level, aside from the cognition side of things, which is now probably more than a decade old, is really being rephrased in Dick Gordon's challenge, but also at the same time, I want to loop Dick Gordon's challenge into what I'm seeing with regards to atomic and distributed network computing currently. It would be the, um, the tornado challenge, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm in agreement with the majority of the group, but that was in some regard poorly phrased. What he described in the podcast last week, and certainly my discussions with him prior, uh, probably more relates to this artificial non-life idea that we need to construct artificial life from artificial non-life and we need to work out the various components, the kind of subatomic components in our uh, well, simulation. Well, yeah, because if you, I mean, if you think about something as simple, I say simple, but of course it's terribly complicated, it's protein folding. One of the groups I work with at Georgia State is, is very focused on one protein. We're trying to figure out one protein, CUR 6.1, and uh, which has some, some very interesting, you know, it's good research, it's good medically-based research, but they're focused on this one protein as a group, and they're interested not just in one, one protein, but they're interested in one tiny section of that protein. They want to look at, you know, just a particular kind of gate in the protein and how it, you know, passes molecules. They're just really interested in the sodium channel. That's all they really care about. And so you think about it, it's like one tiny section of one tiny protein, that, you know, one tiny part of these vast, you know, galaxies of living organisms that, that we all are. But this protein has an analog in a lot of different living things. Like most mammals are going to have some version of this protein. Probably all mammals are going to have some version of this protein in their cells. And so at some level, I'm thinking to myself, maybe we need to granularize all the way down the level of the protein. And if these proteins to react together, you know, then three billion years from now, using all the computing power of the planet, we'll have artificial life. So this is, this is the second part of my point, which I didn't make particularly well last week. Whatever artificial non-life atoms we have need to also fit into this idea of distributed uh, multi-core processing as well. We need to oh, yeah. I include that methodology at this point. Because if we start serializing any of this, we are never going to realize what we need to realize. So we need to take these two important concepts, whatever in an abstract sense these artificial non-life atoms are, and we also need to put it in such a way that these things can interact over uh, distributed networks, multi-core processes, what have you. So we can utilize all the contemporary computing resources and whilst we can't really project into the future about what future computing will look like, at least certainly the next decade or two worth of, you know, the cutting edge of, of computing. 
so we can get this goodness out there and working as fast and as rapidly as possible. So this is a significant challenge. And what we've done so far through Biota Live is really put out three challenges, perhaps. The first being the Evo grid, which in some sense could contain this but is abstracted from it. The second, as I see it, is really with regards to getting artificial life into games. And I think that is a vehicle to bring intelligence and creative resources into the artificial life community because I think we've we've kind of got a, a boiling pot here and you know we need to start spooning out the, the goodness to various people. And then the final thing is what we've been discussing this evening in large part, which is with regards to what Dick started last week in terms of the idea of abstract simulation that in some regard doesn't currently exist in any form. This won't be, you know, the noble ape simulated atoms or artificial non-life atoms. This will be some new paradigm which we're still really in a very high level discussion relating to. Now, there could be some ultimate linking between at least two of the three projects that I've discussed in all possible directions in some regard. I mean, ultimately, if this language is very good at abstracting back into the kind of ecosystems that contemporary or future game development wants to utilise, particularly, as I'm sure you're familiar with, the kind of vast server components of contemporary MMOs and these kind of things, then, you know, we could tick those two together. If we can use the Evo grid as a means of initially beta testing what we're describing with regards to simulation atoms, then, you know, those two link as well. In terms of what you'd like to see in the next year or two years with regards to all these ideas, what's your current thinking, John? I think that what would be probably very ambitious would be, and, and I, but I think necessary. I've been pondering this for a while, and I don't know if I, if I have the technical chops to pull it off, but it's some kind of an artificial physics. Rules for an artificial universe that are as simple as we think they can potentially be and still have some hope of developing additional complexity. So, you know, I don't know where we start, you know, but if you start perhaps at the atomic level or the, or the molecular level or some level of granularity like that, where you're just saying, well, these are the simple rules. This is our periodic table. Obviously, we can't use the real periodic table of the elements because there's just not enough computing power in the world to handle a system that, that's that complex in its interactions, right? But, um, you know, so we're going to have to abstract up from that point. But, um, you know, perhaps there's like some minimum point of abstraction where we can say, okay, we can, we can make it this simple and, and these are the rules and this is our little periodic table of uh, objects and interactions, of things and ways that they can interact with each other. These are, these are our magic Legos. And then just feed the grid with, with the magic Legos and uh, some kind of uh, randomizing tide kind of motion and see if, see if they do stuff. So, I mean, this came up last week, and you've touched on it briefly as well, but the question of resolution is really the fundamental question, whether we start at an atomic level, a subatomic level, whether we start at something more higher level, whether we can represent some of the atomic structures at a higher level in, in a language which is suitable. What is your own thinking with regards to the resolution? I think we go to the atomic level by definition, because whatever we start with are our atoms. You know, we're creating an artificial universe. So whatever our, whatever our fundamental building blocks are, that's our basic particle. However they interact, those are our basic forces. So in a sense, you could say that noble age starts with atoms. And then you look at you know, how many of them are there and what are the ways that they can interact. And I think that what you end up with in a lot of simulations is you end up with far too few species and far too few ways in which they can interact because all of the species are too complicated. So the granularity of it needs to be at a point where pretty much everything can interact with pretty much everything else in very similar ways. So I guess that would be kind of the atomic level or the molecular level. 
Here's another idea for you. There is an argument that says that we could pick any arbitrary level so long as what we had could be either reduced in resolution or increased in resolution as we saw fit. And I think this is a more interesting problem, the idea that the resolution can be established at one point, but as has been the case with, for example, physics, the resolution has been decreased and decreased and decreased, and it's, you know, where there are breaks between planetary physics and subatomic physics, there are more challenges. But there is a kind of continuum right. in physics. And I think that's what interests me with regards to this challenge, which is why I asked Dick about the photon last week. The idea that maybe if we pick a resolution and work from there, with the view that there are ways of, of lowering the resolution if we need it or increasing the resolution if we need it, that may yield you know, what we're looking for. Another question, if we start talking about it in kind of abstract physics, we do predetermine a kind of three-dimensional plus one universe that we're creating these entities in. As you know, with the history of Noble Ape, I've looked at three and two dimensions as ways of simplifying certain things. And certainly if you look at Tierra and these kind of simulations as well, questions of dimension are relatively fundamental. Do you think we need three dimensions plus one to create in this, in this new atomic simulation space, or do you think we can create uh, time or space-independent simulations? I think we can do two plus one, certainly. I don't, I don't have a fundamental difference between two and three plus one. You can do the same. You know, you get the same things with collision avoidance or collision, you know, uh, targeting and those kinds of uh, those kinds of, of ideas, right? That things can rotate, they can attach from different sides. You get, you know, a fairly rich set of shapes um, that are possible. Um, you don't get birds or fish, though. No, but you can you can get uh, you know you can get flatland and you get little flatland fish fishies, uh, fishlets. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you know our, the artificial life ecosystem simulator is basically a fish tank, the two-dimensional one that, that just kind of you know spawns and 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 grows and and you know there's a certain amount of you know predatory behavior that you can see happening there, and I think that that's fine. Time, I think we can get rid of, but we have to replace it with something. You could do an event-driven simulation, but even event-driven simulations, you know, the only difference between them and a, a time-based one is that time is abstracted out until the next time something happens. But everything is scheduled to occur at a time. It's just that you know, time doesn't actually pass. It just jumps from one event to the next. And I think that would be fine, but I think that uh, you, you can't get away from the arrow of time, certainly, especially if you're talking about emergence, because emergent properties, you know, when we talk about emergence or any kind of emergent behavior or emergent system, we're talking about something that unfolds. We're talking about something that at one point in time is one thing, and at another point in time is something completely different. Yeah, you absolutely can't get rid of time, but I think you—I don't think you need three dimensions um, plus a time dimension. I think you can get away with two. Yeah, I think the issues with regards to time, and particularly event-driven simulation, is things that have obviously been discussed through the biotech conversation failing this, but I've also had abstract thoughts with regards to this as well. It's interesting because if you create an environment, you can create transforms which enable you to see the environment better. I mean, this is ultimately the planar landscape in Noble Ape, how you can make three dimensions out of two and add weather and things like that. There are various transformations that you can do which can then abstract time back into a simulation, now trivially with events, as you've said. But I think as these kind of simulation uh, methodologies are, are discussed, and nutted out, it's going to be very interesting to see how time falls out of that, whether we just observe linear discrete time or whether we start talking about events or whether we find a different way of showing time altogether. 
I mean, my hope is that there will almost be a theoretical simulation science as well as an applied simulation science that will come out of all this discussion and be analogous to theoretical physics versus applied physics, theoretical chemistry, theoretical biology even, because I think there's a lot that can come out of that. So, John, with a, with a few minutes remaining, you've talked a little bit about your current work, but we've had 14 months where we haven't had a chance to talk about your, your work. Can you describe the past 14 months in that regard? The past 14 months have been slow. Oh, they've been painful. Um, what I've basically done for the last 14 months is uh, refactor all my code and try to make it not so sloppy. And then uh, lately it occurred to me when uh, I was casting around for a master's thesis topic to finally settle on that these little, these little artificial life simulators made a, made a darn fine ad hoc network. And so what I've been doing for the last few months is rewriting the code into what I hope is going to be a good platform for um, an algorithm that I'm developing in network discovery and, uh, and channelization, which is uh, it's a, it's a pretty good algorithm. I'm pretty happy with it, and uh, I think it's got a paper in it somewhere. Did you hear the EvoGrid discussion where I put that out? I can't remember whether – I think it was the most recent EvoGrid update that I put the point to Bruce that the applied uses of the EvoGrid, as you say, what you're describing with regards to creation of ad hoc networks and also optimization of data transfer through these kind of networks, that could be something that came out of the EvoGrid as well. And I think these kind of applied uses of artificial life are, are really fascinating for the, as you as you pointed out, the ability to kind of discover them abstractly and say, oh, actually, it'd be very useful to do this and these kind of things. And I think that's the that's kind of the sign of a, of a good science. The sign that you, that you might possibly be doing good basic research is when you you know when you're developing your ideas and you're thinking and, and you suddenly go, oh. Right. This can be used for this completely different thing that I'd never thought of before, but that has a practical value. I think at that point you can kind of say, okay, now we're cooking with gas. You've shown that your abstract science is unexpected and surprising, and I think that's always a good sign. When, you, when, you, when you're surprised by something, I think that's always a good sign that you're doing good work. Certainly, or when others are surprised by what you've done and it inspires them to do other things as well, I think that's very useful. So I think the first interview I did with you was with regards to the Ailsen team. Has there been kind of a, a movement developing out of Georgia State with regards to artificial life? No, the, uh, the, the rest of the team kind of walked. Uh, they, they lost interest in the project. But uh, the group that I'm working with is not so much into artificial life as they're just very into some biometrics and, uh, and bioinformatics. It's quite large at Georgia State right now. It just so happens that a lot of the work in bioinformatics that people are doing has to do with, you know, nodes, and it has to do with a lot of different ideas in graph, or graph parsing that, you know, become very useful when you start applying them to artificial life. And then if you're trying to solve these problems in artificial life, you know, you also start to solve some of the problems in terms of, you know, trying to, uh, you know, tease apart uh, genetic codes or, or um, you know, look at SNPs and, and these kinds of things. And then the other team that I've been working with a little bit more closely is very into sensor node networks. And the ties between sensor node networks and artificial life are very, very clear, I think. Because any, any kind of sensor network, the sensors have to have a certain kind of life cycle. And you're looking for certain kinds of emergent behavior from the network uh, that it's hard to predict ahead of time in terms of you know, maximizing battery life for these other specific goals. There aren't people who are really developing in it, but there's sort of a, a nascent sort of undercurrent of interest in uh, the same topics. They're in life, and they're interested in, in, in networks. And it's just you know, like one more step. <laughs> to artificial life research, right? I'm having an ongoing debate with a few people about whether artificial life is part of informatics or bioinformatics. 
and maybe maybe it actually straddles them both perfectly in some regard. I'm writing a chapter currently for a book called Nature Inspired Informatics, and my first thinking about writing in this book was to contact friends that were in bioinformatics and see if that was in fact what I was doing, was in fact trying to bridge some gap. It's very curious that you've, you've described the linking perfectly with regards to these two groups. It's that, but it's, been, it's the, uh, the missing link, I think, is networking. I think that there's something very networked about life and about artificial life. It's all about communication. We, we were talking about it, you know, seeing, smelling, the, the you know, proximity algorithms, that kind of thing, right? That's all about this kind of communication. And anytime when you have a lot of things communicating, you have a network. And so I think that in that, in that regard, you, you, get the, you, get the, you get the informatics, the bioinformatics, and the, uh, any kind of ad hoc networking, I think that you're, whether you like it or not, you're studying artificial life. Yeah, I like that. I think that certainly agrees with my own thinking. When you talk to people at Georgia State, do you talk about artificial life at all? Uh, every, every chance I get. Anytime I'm talking about my own research, of course, I, you know, I say, and, and this is an algorithm, artificial life project, and uh, you know, I'll always talk about, you know, we're always talking about living simulation, uh, especially with the protein group because that's, that's really what they're interested in doing, developing any kind of simulator. It makes any kind of sense for this protein-folding problem. And so, I, yeah, I slip it into the conversation. I, I, I see what the... Uh, yeah, I, try, I try and gauge people's interests. I think that uh, there's, a certain, there's a certain amount of uh, misunderstanding maybe about uh, artificial life being an outgrowth of artificial intelligence. And uh, the artificial intelligence group is not very large at Georgia State, nor very well-funded, so there might be a certain amount of uh, student fear it was interesting chatting with Chris Hecker because obviously he started off using a lot of artificial intelligence related discussion and without saying it explicitly I had to kind of channel him more towards what we talk about with artificial life but it all comes back to the problem that there aren't really fundamental texts anymore that describe what we're all doing in an abstract sense. I mean the best we can do with these podcasts is cobble together ideas and it's interesting we're as, as I've talked about we're currently planning the press of a thousand CDs of these conversations amongst other other things from the bio to podcast stream and the drop points that we're going to do this in terms of people that are not even necessarily artificial life curious but a large number of academics and these kind of folk as well as all the people attending artificial life 11 in terms of how that will affect the kind of broader discussions of the community i'm very interested in tracking this you talk about artificial life about fundamentally being about communication well this is meta to that as well but yes artificial life even on the meta level is fundamentally about communication as well and I, I agree with you. I think there is a lot of, not necessarily misinformation, but certainly misunderstanding with regards to what artificial life is. So with three minutes remaining, John, in terms of the next few months, are you going to be putting any of your work online? Is there any way that people can get in contact with you and see your current work? Well, absolutely. They can go to my website um, at johnpdagle.com. They can click over to the student section and, and sort of hunt down the uh, ALSIM project where they can find the SourceForge page uh, there uh, and log into that. And then, oh, heck, what is it? I think it's ALSIM.SourceForge.net, A-L-E-S-I-M. And they can download the Subversion repository and do whatever they want. <laughs> it's all Creative Commons licensed. People are welcome to look at it. My work has a sort of perpetual embryonic nature because I'm usually doing more rewriting than I'm doing writing. I think I'm... I'm reasonably proud of the way it's engineered right now, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting these uh, killer algorithms into it. All my papers or anything I've written is online and at the website. People are welcome to email me or 
chat, hunt me down on Skype, whatever, usually around. And certainly I'll include all the uh, all your related links in the show notes as well, John, because it's been wonderful having you on again. And, and don't be a stranger. Don't allow another 14 months to elapse before you join in the conversation again, because I've certainly had a lot of fun chatting with you this evening. Well, thanks. This has been great, Tom. Appreciate it. Next Friday night, May 30th, the Evo Grid and Biota updates. And stay tuned for the end of this podcast when the Talking Robots folk relaunch their new podcast, the Robots Podcast, which will also be linked to in the show notes with regards to this episode. Thank you very much again, John, for the chance to chat. Thank you, Tom. Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Sabine. Welcome to Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. As you can hear, we are currently putting together the new Robots podcast. Our new show, Robots, will continue to report on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. In addition to insights from high-profile professionals, Robots will take you for a ride through the world's research labs, robotics companies, and their latest innovations. The first full episode of Robots will be released on Friday, June the 6th, 2008. Until then, visit our website at www.robotspodcast.com and send us your comments, news, and views. If you have not done so yet, make sure to subscribe to our RSS feed. Hope to see you in two weeks.